welcome to episode 26 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five O podcast. I am your clean as a whistle host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Rides. It is the end of season two, and so I'm going to be discussing the season two finale, episode 25, Kiss the Queen Goodbye. I'm also going to do a quick little season two wrap up. So let us not delay. Let's go to Hawaii. Even with the flaws, they're good. Looks like Dietrich was long on talent and short on profit. He didn't have much. A few old grinding tools in the back of the store, nothing else. New York police have any leads in the murderer? Nope, straight into a stone wall. I'm beginning to get worried, Dano. Why would he be making copies of the most valuable gemstone on the island? Maybe you like to practice? Oh, sure. Professional Iceman, as good as he obviously was, be hard to satisfy. Take a couple of rejects to get what he wanted, huh? Meaning somebody could be walking around with a perfect pace copy of the Queen. Yeah. And didn't want Dietrich alive to brag about it. Season 2, Episode 25, Kiss the Queen Goodbye. Air date March 11th, 1970, directed by Abner Biberman. This is his fifth of five episodes. And written by Jack Turley, this is his third of three episodes. A woman going by the name of Camilla Carver walks into a New York City jewelry store and looks at a necklace featuring a replica of the Queen of Polynesia Emerald. Instead of paying the man who made it for her, she shoots him dead. Danny heads to New York City and talks to the detective in charge of the investigation, but the dead man had no apparent connection to Hawaii. He gives Danny some copies of the Queen that they found, and Danny takes them home. There, Steve is concerned because it looks like someone has arranged to have a perfect copy of the Queen made, and the presentation of the real Queen to the Hawaiian people is going to be a main event at the upcoming King Kamehameha festivities. He expresses his concern to the governor and the men in charge of the festival when they come to the office to discuss the security, and asks them to postpone the Queen's part of the festivities due to the high risk of theft. The men all appreciate Steve's concern, but they have no desire to make his job easier. They insist the ceremony take place on time. Camilla and the copy of the Queen arrive at the house she's sharing with her partner, Michael Olson. He's a bit snippy that she's late, but the good news is that he's found her a perfect mark. Who is actor and grandfather Thurman Elliott, a man having a bit of financial trouble, which his young granddaughter Amanda overhears him discussing on the phone. Elliot wants to send Amanda to an elite private school in Maryland, but Amanda doesn't want him to spend the money. Elliot assures her that he can afford it and she shouldn't worry about such things. Because he's got an expensive diamond bracelet he can pawn. With Camilla and Olsen watching the whole time, Elliot attempts to sell the bracelet to the owner, but the owner, suspicious that the bracelet might be stolen, makes an excuse to step in the back. When Elliot realizes that he's calling the police, he splits. The pawn shop owner talks to Steve and Danny about the bracelet, which doesn't match anything on their hot sheet. The pawn owner might be wrong, but he's been in the business a long time. He knows when something smells hot. Camilla arranges a meet-cute with Elliot at the bar he's drinking at, telling him that she was supposed to be at a party he was at but missed it. Elliot gets nervous at the mention of the party and attempts to excuse himself, but Camilla coaxes him into another drink and leads him to a table where Olsen is sitting. It seems that the bracelet Elliot has is stolen, and Olsen saw him take it. If he wants to keep this whole matter quiet, then he needs to do exactly what they want, escort Camilla to the Queen of Polynesia pageant. 
Five-O is frustrated trying to provide security for the pageant. The governor's aide doesn't think all of the security checks are necessary. The whole location is difficult to secure. And they just added 17 more names to the guest list that need to be checked out by HPD, who are already screaming from the workload. It's a damn mess. Meanwhile, Olsen and Camilla prepare for the pageant in their own way. Olsen paints the thorns of a bouquet of roses with a liquid that will cause temporary unconsciousness, while Camilla annoys him by practicing to put the fake queen of Polynesia on someone. At the pageant, Fivo is stationed all over the place, and Olsen is in the kitchen. Fivo is on high alert as the governor arrives by helicopter. Steve talks to the girl who will be wearing the real queen, instructing her to do exactly as she rehearsed and follow all directions. Meanwhile, Olsen plants the roses at the table Camilla and Elliot are sitting at. The queen of Polynesia arrives by armored car, and Steve escorts it to the girl, putting it on her. Kono tells everyone to get ready. The procession is about to begin. Let me start off the discussion by being completely honest and saying that this episode is kind of meh for me. It's not a bad episode. There's nothing overtly wrong with it. It just doesn't hit me where I live, I guess. I find myself watching the clock, checking the time left when I'm watching this episode. So maybe it's a pacing issue, but I don't know. There's nothing about it that screams not good. It's actually a pretty solid episode, but for whatever reason, it, it just doesn't flip my skirt. And the funny thing is, is that it does have elements that I really do like about it. I appreciate them illustrating the difficulties that Steve has doing his job because the people in charge won't take his concerns seriously. And they expect him to provide excellent security and then proceed to make his job as difficult as possible by being incredibly uncooperative. They won't postpone the festival, or at least the Queen's part of the festival, for Steve's to check out this threat, this possible threat. The invitations have already been sent out. The white-ass family that has this jewel that's somehow very important to the Hawaiian people, because of course, are looking forward to presenting this to the Hawaiian people, and, and this is a very important part of their day, and... They expect so much of Steve and 5-0, but they are absolutely not willing to help them at all, especially when you have, like, later they have the governor's aide yelling about all the security checks for not just the guests, but all of the waiters involved. Just got a revised guest list from the governor's office. They've added 17 new names. Great. Doesn't anybody plan to stay home tomorrow? Get that list over to HPD, Jim. Ask him to check out the new names. We were already give them over 100 people to clear, Steve. They're screaming. Well, then put some cotton in your ears, brother. Because there are any ringers at that party, I want to know who they are. And the fact that they're having this at a very open park and there's all of these entrances and exits they have to cover. It's a lot of land. They need a lot of manpower. It's incredibly relatable for someone like me who's worked in customer service for most of their adult life and has worked in retail a big chunk of that in that we are expected to work miracles. They want you to get all of this stuff done, but they will not provide you with the resources or the pay to do it. So I could totally feel Steve's frustration and the rest of 5-0's frustration when it came to dealing with this threat. I also liked the blackmail scheme that Camilla and Olsen come up with. And it's interesting the way that they present it. First of all, you're kind of curious as to what they need a mark for. You know they have this fake Queen of Polynesia necklace. So you're kind of curious as to what they need a mark for. And when we're introduced to their mark, Thurman Elliot, 
you're still kind of curious. You know he's having money troubles, so perhaps you think maybe, well, they're going to con him some way, but you think maybe it'll be in terms of bribery or something like that. They'll do a bait and switch saying, we'll pay you if you do something for us. Instead, what we get is Michael Olson, career waiter, was working at a party and knows that Elliot stole this bracelet. So the blackmail part is kind of clever because they watch him attempt to pawn it. They don't know if he still has it on him, but Camilla says it doesn't matter. They still know. So when she corrals him, because you're wondering kind of why he's getting nervous talking to her because she's being very complimentary. She's not being overtly threatening. She's just complimenting him and saying how much she's always wanted to meet him and that she enjoys his work. And then he gets a bit nervous at the mention of the party and she corrals him over to talk to Olsen. And then Olsen picks his pocket because they suspect he might not have pawned the bracelet. So he picks his pocket and brings it out. And they basically say, hey, we know how you got this and what you need is for us to be quiet. What do you want? It's really quite simple. You need a favor from us. Our discretion. You see, Michael was at Sarah Landfair's party, and when that bracelet fell off of her arm, he saw you very quickly kick it underneath a seat without anyone noticing. Anyone except Michael, that is. But I intend to return it at the first opportunity. <laughs> is that why you took it to a pawn shop? It's really very simple. I want you to take me to the governor's pageant tomorrow. And then we'll forget all about the bracelet. And I should note that Thurman Elliott is played by George Gaines. And he does an incredible job of sweating throughout this episode. And by sweating, I mean not actually sweating. I mean, he is obviously nervous and anxious. He does a great job of portraying that in a very subtle way that still communicates his discomfort with everything that he's doing from the pawn to the blackmail scheme to the gala. He's not just Punky's dad and Commandant Lazard. So I really like how they get Elliot involved. And you can kind of understand why. Because this not only would be very embarrassing, but this means he might be possibly prosecuted and go to jail. And that would leave Amanda all alone. And Amanda is a lovely granddaughter. This, I believe, is her only acting credit. And I'm sad about that because Amanda was totally 11 going on 45. And it's not just the cat's eye glasses she was wearing. When she comes in and overhears Elliot talking on the phone about some money difficulties, there's just this look on her face and she shakes her head like, oh, this fool. And she's very sweet about how she says that she doesn't really need to go to this girl's school. And of course, he tells her not to worry about the money or anything, which, you know, a little kid shouldn't be worrying about the money. And the fact that she is, is it says a lot about her. There's something very mature about her in that scene. Grandfather? Yes? Are you really going to send me to that special girls' school in Maryland? Of course I am. I sent your mother there when she was your age. I was talking to Pammy Thompson about girls' schools and things. Her sister went to one in California. Really? Pammy said she heard her father say it cost almost $4,000 just for one year. Oh, well, that's not so much. It seems like an awful lot to me. I've been thinking, you don't have to send me away to a special girl's school, like you said. I'll understand. And I do kind of wonder where her parents are, because 
Elliot mentions that he sent his daughter, her mother, to the same girls' school in Maryland. And so if it was good enough for her, it's good enough for Amanda. But I wonder where Amanda's parents are. I'm guessing it's something terribly tragic, and that's why she's got a little more of an old soul vibe going for her. So yes, there are some things that I definitely like about the episode, but overall I'm just rather met on it. I do enjoy the fact that we start off in New York City, and that's in air quotes, because they do a lot of stock footage of Times Square and stuff like that to set the tone, and then it's obviously on a soundstage somewhere. And the initial setup, the initial murder, is actually quite good, because you're not exactly sure what's going on, obviously. You know that he's made copies of this queen, because he mentions it, and... When it comes time to pay, you kind of don't expect her to full-on shoot the guy in the back while he's going for a, reaching for a box that she asks him to get for. And there's a nice touch with a record player that he plays in the, the jewelry store because she asks if they can turn it off. And he goes, no, there are people living upstairs. This covers their voices. So there's a nice touch with that. When she shoots him, he upsets the record player and it stops playing and she quickly puts it back to play before she leaves. I don't know. I just kind of liked that touch. It really doesn't amount to much, but it's a nice little detail. And then for some reason, we have Danny going to New York City to discuss this with the detectives. And this is like two days after the murder. And they, of course, are stumped. But I guess this was the way for them to get the copies back to Honolulu. And it's great, too, because Danny comes back. We're guessing he has a quick turnaround in NYC and he comes back because later when Camilla shows up at the house, Michael says she's three days late. So I'm guessing there is a quick turnaround for Danny to go out to New York City, get these fakes and bring them back to Honolulu. And he shows no signs of jet lag whatsoever. Do you know why? Because he is a member of Five O, and I guess they're magical. That's my going theory at this point. I would be dead on my feet. Anyway, a big chunk of the episode is spent going back and forth between Five O and Camilla and Olsen preparing for this pageant just, you know, in different ways. We have Five O preparing the security and we have Camilla and Olsen preparing to steal the Queen of the Polynesia. And Camilla and Olsen make an interesting team. They have a very interesting dynamic. I can't, you can't really tell if they're just straight business partners or lovers or something like that because they don't seem to like each other very much. There's something perpetually annoyed about both of them when dealing with the other one. You quit playing around. The girl needs practice. Besides, you look absolutely radiant in it. Take it off. Not bad, darling. Don't you save it for the main event. Kiss the queen goodbye. It's like two people who don't like each other very much, but they work really well together while pulling off jewelry thefts and have great sex. That's what I'm guessing. Anyway, it's like 35 minutes in. 30 minutes, 35 minutes in when we get to the pageant, we get to the actual gala. And oh my gosh, let me just say this is another aspect of this episode that I absolutely love because we are talking about everybody out in their finery. This is 1970s Hawaii finery. This is not your average one of the mill gala. 
we are talking about beautiful, vibrant colors, just gorgeous patterns. It is a smorgasbord for the eyes. The fashion is so absolutely wonderful. Both times I watched this episode in preparation to record for the podcast, I was completely distracted by all of the finery. It's just so gorgeous. I could live in that scene. And 5-0, no slouches either, because everybody is undercover in different spots. Steve is wearing a gorgeous red coat with white shirt, white tie, white pants. You're not going to see a man pull this off anywhere else. Anyone else would look like a parking valet. He does not. The actual valet is Danny, and he's wearing a lovely powder blue ensemble. And we have Kono in the kitchen, wearing appropriate kitchenware. And then we have Chin Ho, who is wearing all white. And it's a white ruffle front shirt, like a almost like a tuxedo shirt of some kind, but with no tie. He's just dressed in all white. I don't know what he's supposed to be undercover as. Perhaps a Chinese angel. I don't know. But he's absolutely fabulous, and it's my favorite look out of everybody's. And that's saying something because usually Steve blows me away with his fashion. So the pageant happens. There's the, this slow buildup of everybody doing their things to get ready for the queen to come in. And the governor is up there giving this very long, boring, whitewashed history speech about Hawaii and the Queen of Polynesia's history. It's a total snooze fest. I think that's probably why there was booze at the party. And finally, the procession begins. And oh my gosh, they have the cutest little kids coming out doing a hula while I'm guessing their teacher sings a song and and plays ukulele while they come out. And oh my gosh, they are so absolutely adorable. I love them all. And they're followed by Amanda, who they're kind of recreating, I guess, the wedding of this Hawaiian woman and this white guy. I'm guessing he's important. Listen, I didn't really listen that closely to the governor's speech. Like I said, it sounded like whitewashed history. I wasn't interested. So I think Amanda is supposed to be the little flower girl or something because she's dressed all in white and she has a little basket and she's very cute. And she comes out and then the couple comes out. The woman who's portraying the bride is wearing the Queen of Polynesia. And the way this scheme ends up working out is someone comes and gives the girl a bouquet of roses. So when she gets a little bit closer, Camillus takes that opportunity to take one of the tainted roses she has and gives it to the girl, making sure she pricks herself with the thorn. So she does a total sleeping beauty, collapses within a few seconds. Camilla rushes over and she's wearing this beautiful dress, but it's got kind of like that excess fabric thing going on like a belt with excess fabric and she takes it and she covers her with it while fanning her and that's when she makes this switch and though we see part of it we don't see like the whole thing we do not see how she actually executes the switch it's very vegas magician but she manages to make the switch and the girl comes to very quickly she leaves before steve gets there because steve has to go through this crowd of people to get to her and he, when he stands her up, he checks the necklace and realizes it's been switched. So, of course, Steve is right. Someone's made off with the Queen of Polynesia. And now they have to prevent them from leaving. Probably not a spoiler to say that they're able to do that. But I'm not going to tell you how they do that. I will say that it's a little anticlimactic how they do that. But hey, at least there's a helicopter ride. <laughs> You know what else is uplifting? This guest cast. And we should take a look at him, since it's the last one of the season. 
Camilla Carver was played by Joanne Linville. This is her third of three episodes. We also saw her in the first season two-parter, Once Upon a Time. Thurman Elliott, as I said, was played by George Gaines, probably best known as Commandant Lassard at the Police Academy movies. He was also Henry Warnmont on Punky Brewster, Arthur Feldman on The Days and Nights of Molly Dodd, and Senator Strobe Smitherson on Hearts of Fire. He also turned up in episodes of Hawaiian Eye, The Patty Duke Show, Bonanza, Mannix, Mission Impossible, Hogan's Heroes, Search, Columbo, The Six Million Dollar Man, Cannon, McLeod, Black Sheep Squadron, WKRP in Cincinnati, Blue Thunder, Dinosaurs, Chicago Hope, and Sliders. He was in the movies Wag the Dog, The Crucible, Mickey and Maud, Tootsie, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, Altered States, and The Boy Who Cried Werewolf. And he was in the TV movies Trilogy of Terror, Song of the Succubus, The Girl in the Empty Grave, and Breaking Up is Hard to Do. Michael Olsen was played by Christopher Carey. He was Goneth on Garrison's Gorillas. He was also in episodes of The Man from Uncle and The Girl from Uncle, Batman, Big Valley, Time Tunnel, Wild Wild West, Mannix, Land of the Giants, Wonder Woman, Vegas, Voyagers, Masquerade, Riptide, Hill Street Blues, and Ah! Real Monsters. He was also in the movies Rescue Me, Watchers, Missing in Action 2, Raid on Rommel, and Marlowe. And he was in the TV movies The Mask of Sheba, Death Race, Planet Earth, Mind Over Murder, and Captain America 2, Death Too Soon, starring Red Brown as Captain America. Amanda was played by Druan Setlow. This is her only credit. The Hawaiian girl who wore the Queen of Polynesia necklace was played by Kanoe Casimero. This is her only credit. Lieutenant Carlo in New York City was played by Hal Lewis. This is his second of four episodes. We also saw him in King Kamehameha Blues. Dietrich, the jeweler, was played by Hans Collin. This was his only credit. The pawn shop owner was played by George Herman. This is his first of 14 episodes. He was also in episodes of The Brian Keith Show. Jim Brady was played by Howard Gottschick. This is his first of six episodes. And in an uncredited role, Young Say was played by Norman Reyes. This is his first of two episodes. And that is Kiss the Queen Goodbye. Kind of a short discussion, but for me, there really wasn't a whole lot to talk about. It's a solid episode. It's an okay episode, but like I said, it did absolutely nothing for me, and I kept watching the clock. Of course, back in 1970, season finales weren't huge, so the season kind of ends on a lackluster note with this episode, but you had the really great two-parter right before it, so I don't think people really noticed. And like I said, since season finales weren't big deals back then, I doubt anybody was disappointed. I do very much enjoy George Gaines' Thurman Elliott. Like I said, it's fun to watch him sweat. He's very good at it. And I enjoy the little girl who played Amanda. She and George Gaines had a very sweet chemistry. And I honestly enjoy Joanne Linville coming back for another episode. I do like watching her play a bad guy. And we don't get a whole lot of interaction between her and Steve, but they still, their chemistry is off the charts. I do love them together. And as I said, there are aspects of the episode I really do like. Oh my gosh, I will never get over all of the beautiful fashion at the gala. That's probably like the number one thing for me in this episode. But overall, it just doesn't do it for me. And that might not be the case for you. So be sure to give it a watch. Mac would get killer on here. 
And that is season two of Hawaii Five-O. I hope you enjoyed it. I did. It's not a bad follow-up to the first season. It's really full of solid episodes. None of them are real, for me anyway, none of them are really standout episodes. When I compiled my list of doing favorite episodes for every season, in comparison to the first season where I had like five shortlisted, I only had one from this season and that was most likely to murder. Upon rewatch, 40 feet high and it kills probably should have been on the shortlist, but I would have ended up picking most likely to murder anyway. So there are a lot of enjoyable episodes in this season. It's just that none of them are too over the top or really standout-ish, at least for me. You may feel differently. You might have completely different favorites. You might think this was a seller season. I don't know. We're all different. We all like different things, and that's what makes the world great. Pardon the TV in the background. No one in my house can watch things at a reasonable volume, even when I say, hey, I'm going to record. Everything's loud. There's also a lot of great guest stars in this season. I so enjoyed seeing all of the familiar faces, especially when we had people like Martin Sheen and Tom Skerritt who showed up just prior to hitting it really big. It's so cool to see them prior to that ascension. And they did magnificent jobs, of course. Also want to mention that the show actually got one Emmy win this season, and that was Best Music Composition the award went to Morton Stevens, who also did the theme song, and it was for the episode A Thousand Pardons, You're Dead. So if you enjoyed the music in that one, hey, it was an Emmy winner. Welcome, Denim. And now for your favorite part and mine, the tallies for season two. As with season one, I kept an arbitrary list of random things that I felt were noteworthy, mostly whenever the guys went undercover or got hurt. Also, I kept a tally of the number of times we had some racist casting incidents. And, of course, I kept tally of how many times they said Bookum Dano. Guess what? No utterance of Bookum Dano in Season 2. Nobody said it. Steve never said it once in Season 2. Unless I missed it. And that's always possible, but I don't think so. So I'm going on the record and saying that Steve McGarrett never once said Bookum Dano in Season 2. Put that one in your hip pocket for trivia night. Feel free to compare that with season one when he said it three times and also Bookham Chin. Now I'm curious to see if we won't have a bounce back in season three and have some more Bookham Daniels. As for our four mains, let's see what they got up to during season two. Steve McGarrett, he was shot in a spoiler moment. He was stabbed in a spoiler moment. He also was blinded by a car bomb explosion and he cracked his ribs fighting with his friend Johnny. In addition, he went undercover once for like a quick minute as a dock worker. Dano, meanwhile, had a much calmer season two than he did in season one. He went undercover as a soldier and he was undercover as a valet at the gala we just talked about. And his friend turned out to be a murderer, but at least he didn't get shot or otherwise wounded. As for Chin Ho, he also had a quieter season two. He was just accused of bribery and suspended once and he was undercover at the gala in a fabulous shirt. Kono really kind of had a hand it to him this season. Even though it felt like we didn't see much of Chen Ho and Kono, they were around, they were doing stuff, and Kono did a lot. Kono ended up standing in for a dictator, he went undercover as a security guard, he was undercover in the kitchen at the gala, and he was also hit over the head while on stakeout. I am also pleased to report that the incidents of racist casting went down by a whole lot, 
there's actually only two instances where we had not Hawaiians or Pacific Islanders or Asians playing those characters. Once in To Hell with Babe Ruth with Will Kaluva and Mark Leonard playing Japanese when they're not. And in which way did they go? Phil Pine is not Asian. But I did have to add a new category for not Latinos or Hispanics thanks to Savage Sunday because Julie Gregg, Edward Coleman's, and Wright Esser are not Latinx or Hispanic. So hey, overall, it's a trending in the right direction. And that's kind of the whole theme of season two. Solid, enjoyable episodes, not too many of them that were meh or otherwise lackluster. Plenty of peril. And of course, the good guys always won. And that is episode 26 of Bookum Dano and the end of season two. Thank you so much for joining me through the first two seasons of Hawaii Five-O and Book of Dano. I am so happy that you are listening. I so appreciate it. Extra special thanks goes out to my three Anns, Dan, for being such a good sport and coming back on the show to discuss a couple of episodes with me. Shan, who was my hero and provided me with sound clips for the last several episodes of the podcast. And Stan, who has been very supportive throughout the second season of the show. Love you guys. You are my faves. And I'm always, always, always grateful for everyone who listens to this podcast. It is a silly little thing that brings me a lot of joy. And I hope it does for you too. If you would like to experience even more joy, you can do that by finding me online and going to my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano. And if you want that joy in real time, you can get it by following me on Twitter at kikiwrites. So take those extra steps to safeguard your priceless jewelry, and don't be afraid to book them. Until next time. Aloha.